The United States is a powder keg with a very short fuse. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. In the latest collision between U.S. police officers and black males, George Floyd dies at the hands of Minneapolis police. Derek Chauvin faces a second-degree murder charge in connection with Floyd's death. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, Chauvin pinned Floyd's neck to the ground, all captured on video by a passerby. And that exploded in Minneapolis, where angry demonstrators took to the streets to unleash their anger. Those demonstrations have spread to major U.S. cities, as well as other cities in Canada and in Europe. For his part, U.S. President Donald Trump has blasted state governors for allowing the destruction to continue. He's even invoked the threat of the Insurrection Act, which has not been used since the 1992 Rodney King riots in L.A. That would allow the U.S. government to send in troops to quell a domestic uprising. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll find out more about the simmering relationship between police and black males. Later in the show, we'll hear about other groups that are using the violence for cover for their own agenda. As well, we look back five years ago, almost to the day, and find the U.S. is not any different than it was then. Yahura Williams is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's a professor of African-American history, and he joins us on the Unpublished Cafe. And Yahura, what was the mood in Minneapolis prior to the Floyd killing? Uh, Fairly typical. Um, You know, Minneapolis is a thriving uh, metropolitan area. But there are lingering uh, frustrations in this community related to some other police, notable police killings of civilians here. Um, most people are aware of Jamar Clark and Philando Castile. Um, those were two kind of high-profile shootings that didn't end with the community feeling a high degree of, of uh, trust or satisfaction with the process by which police are punished. And so when the Floyd murder took place, it brought all those feelings back to the surface in addition to really, I think, moving people because of their visceral reaction to the video itself. You know, as a professor of African-American history, um, the the conflict between police and black males seems to have been going on for quite a while. What's it going to take to resolve it? It's a great question. I think it's not necessarily just the conflict between the police and uh, communities of color, the Mm African-American community. It's what the police have come to represent. So if we think about some of the notable um, civil rights organizations and leaders in this country, Malcolm X articulated this as the James Baldwin and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that the police in some sense in communities of color, African-American community represent uh, the force of the outside world, the white world, which imposes rules and structures which are detrimental to that community. Um, I like to call them the six degrees of segregation, but lack of access to adequate housing unfair labor practices, uh, disfranchisement. And Jim Crow justice or police brutality is the most intractable of those because really what it represents, and if we think about the Floyd case in terms of the circumstances that led up to it, uh, Mr. Floyd was accused of passing a $20 bill, a phony $20 bill. It's a minor uh, crime by any um, metric that you look at. And then it leads to um, this horrific act of police brutality and, and ultimately his death. So when people are in the streets here, they are looking at the police as the manifestation of a much deeper um, structural problem in the United States that's at its core is historical. So it dates back to um, the history of slavery in this country, but then also has manifested itself in ways that deprive uh, African-Americans of economic opportunity, uh, social equality, and political rights. 
you know, with, with a situation like this, and we'll, we'll just use Minneapolis as, as as the example right now, it must be di- very difficult for for um, an African American police officer to you know conduct their job, their day to day work. You know, feeling on one side like they're being like being ostracized, and on the other, they're the ones having to you know support the law in the first place. Uh, it's incredibly diff- difficult. One of the things that you've had in this country historically are conversations around how to reform policing. And in the 1960s, community policing became very popular. It was one of the rallying mm-hmm. cries of reformers. You also have people pushing for the inclusion of the people, um, your representation on the police force of the communities those forces serve. So the argument would be that you should have police and firemen, um, teachers who teach in the communities of color who should represent those communities. Uh, when that happens, unfortunately, with the police, it brings you up into uh, the challenge of dealing with the culture of policing in the United States. And that culture of policing is what's most problematic. Yesterday, for example, um, the city council here in Minneapolis uh, got a temporary restraining order to bar chokeholds by police. But it also dealt with some cultural elements within the police force that are, are pervasive. For example, it now makes it um, punishable for an office for it requires officers or makes the duty to report for officers who witness any type of violence on the scene against a um, someone who's being detained. It also um, prescribes punishment for those officers who, who who do nothing. So it actually creates a duty to act for those officers. Uh, that wouldn't be necessary if you had a latitude or a range of activity that one could assume police officers could resort to under circumstances like we saw with Mr. Floyd. But what you saw in essence uh, two weeks ago was Officer Chauvin placing his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and then three other officers standing around and not intervening. So even if you have officers of color, I mean, one of the arguments Mm -hmm. that's been made here in Minneapolis is you have an African-American police chief. uh, And the fact of the matter is that people don't recognize that it was unprecedented for the chief to fire those four officers in the aftermath of that incident. That rarely happens, never happens here. Usually there's a suspension with pay and an investigation. That was a pretty definitive act. But at the same time, those officers of color are still operating within a a culture within the police that doesn't necessarily um, jibe with the larger uh, civil rights um, ideology about equality. And that in and of itself is part of the problem. The culture of police is, is usually it's us against them, right? We're the, we uphold the, the law and, you know, that, that's what we're here for. Um, but the culture of police uh, seems to have changed. I just, you know, you look at, uh, you look at the situation in Buffalo yesterday where, where two get suspended and then 57 walk out because they don't like the suspension. A lot of people have been talking about the, the power of the police unions these days. Uh, is that something that has to be looked at? Absolutely. Um, you know, we want to be sensitive to peace officers because we all respect the importance of the thin blue line and what that represents. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, police unions and the protections that are afforded to police, the um, benefit of the doubt that officers receive when brought up on administrative, um, in these types of administrative hearings, uh, the fact that, you know, they, they have this qualified immunity that we associate with policing, all those things in and of themselves help to create a, that are, are ripe for abuse and can create a culture of abusive practices. Um, and that's why there's such, you know, uh, anger in this moment toward police unions, because they're so singularly focused on the officers. And from the standpoint of the officers, you've got protesters, demonstrators, politicians, um, uh, people across the United States looking at this and saying, 
so what do we value more? Is it human life or is it, you know, the union trying to um, make sure that these protections are, are followed? And those two things are um, seem to be incongruous in this moment. And that's why there's such anger and frustration around the police unions. Uh, the, act- the actions of those officers in, in Buffalo resigning from the special special team uh, unit uh, for dealing with that is one example. And people look at that um, video and they say, here's an egregious case of uh, police brutality. And then when the officers come back and say, well, this guy was breaking curfew and, you know, resisting, it's kind of hard to, to um, explain that in the context of what we all see with our own eyes in the video. At the same mm-hmm. time, it's hard for anybody to feel comfortable watching that video and not feeling like that's brutality. Yohura Williams is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, as well as Professor of African American History. And we talk about the the violence that's been going on. The president's been very vocal and been pretty hard on governors for not cracking down harder on the protesters. Would you call that a fair characterization of the governors, not not cracking down hard enough, very weak? No, I don't think so at all. I think... um, what we've watched play out, it happened here initially in Minneapolis, St. Paul, is the recognition on the part of, of elected officials, both mayors and governors, that, in, and I'll use St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis as an example, they did not have the manpower initially um, to deal with the size of the protest that swelled considerably. I don't think anybody was anticipating um, the level of, of protest that this was going to galvanize across the country. And there's also this concern, which um, metropolitan police forces and, and elected officials have dealt with from governors on down, of recognizing that it's how you handle those initial hours um, and days of these types of incidents that can have a tremendous impact. If you show restraint, if you're able to kind of redirect and get people to focus on peaceful means, if you can kind of control um, that those, those angry expressions, you do have a better chance of hopefully managing um, that violence or managing the arson and looting in a way that minimizes it. I don't think anybody was prepared for what happened here um, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so what you ultimately have is the president reacting from D.C., not on the ground, and not understanding that sometimes to overreact, to overpolice, um, to do as the president suggested by sending in troops can sometimes make those matters worse. And we've got you know, um, recent American history as well as older American history to point to that. Rodney King in 1992 is certainly an example. Miami in 1980, the 125 racial disturbances that rocked the United States in 1967 that led to the Kerner Commission report and its famous findings that America was drifting toward two societies, separate and unequal. So, you know, I think the president here is kind of divorced from the reality that um, there's also a very important way that you have to manage these types of incidents so that you don't fuel Um, the the fire and the anger. And you don't wind up with another incident like we saw in Buffalo where people are out in the streets, you know, now um, Mm. more than a week after the incident and tensions are so uh, exaggerated and exacerbated that you end up with other incidents, which then inflame passions even more. Yohuru, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yohuru Williams is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's also a professor of African American history. Now, as mentioned, many of the U.S. governors have complained that the violence and looting is being done by groups and people from outside their states. 
Adam Leggett's a former British Army counterterrorism officer who now works as a security consultant specializing in crowd management for the Densis Group, and he joins us from the UK. And Adam, are there outside influences in these riots? In some places there are. It will depend very much on which cities we're talking about. Some already have their own um, activist population who are involved in it, and with some of them they are travelling to other places. And in terms of them traveling from one to the other, what's what's their end game here? Depends who we're talking about. I mean, there are multiple different people that have been involved in these disturbances. Right. Um, one of the big difficulties for anyone trying to organize a protest is they have no control over who turns up. When you put a call out for a protest, then if they're outside groups or people with other agendas that want to come, there isn't much a protest organizer can do to stop them. Um, So different groups are turning up, different types of people um, with very different agendas, some of them. In terms of the agendas, we've heard, you know, far left groups, uh, we've heard far right groups, Antifa. Are, Are they clashing with each other? Are they clashing with demonstrators or are they clashing with police? It depends who we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. a, a great deal of the looting isn't being done by anyone with a political agenda. Um, that's, a lot of that is crime-driven. Uh, we studied extensively after the 2011 riots in London that the, the crime gangs were leading the efforts to loot. They were there not because of the protest. They were there specifically to steal. And then once they had begun, once they had broken windows, gone into stores, then other people were joining in. Um, With with the activist groups, um, the far left and the anarchist groups, they're also there for a number of different reasons. Um, Partly, they would like to see very large political changes and believe that street violence is one of the ways to achieve that. Um, they would also, a lot of them, see themselves as being there to support the people of colour, but they just, they have a different way of doing that. A lot of them believe that by attacking police, they're actually protecting protesters. And that's an excuse you will hear them use a lot for why they're engaged in violence, engaged in black bloc tactics at these events. Adam Leggett is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's a former British Army counterterrorism officer who now works as a security consultant specializing in crowd management for the Densis Group as we talk about the George Floyd riots in the U.S. and actually right around the world uh, today. Now, when we look, we talked an awful lot about the far uh, left uh, far left groups that are infiltrating far right. I've heard uh, about some of them in there. One group that I've heard about is bourgeois bourgeois boys. Is is that the name of that? And what can you tell us about them? Uh, the the term they use is boogaloo. It's boogaloo. people who believe that there is going to be a civil war in America, and they refer to it as the boogaloo. Um, I haven't seen significant amounts of far right people at these events. To be honest, there's there's nothing indicating that there are significant amounts of them taking advantage of it. They are talking a lot about it. They're clearly excited by the idea because they believe some kind of race war will happen in America and that current events are bringing it closer. 
You know, I'm thinking about we've got far left groups, we have the far right groups, and we, of course, we've got uh, the demonstrators in general. When we look at the, de- the the damage that's being done, does each group have a, I guess, a certain target in mind when they start trashing things, or is it just whatever's in front of them, they go? So, like with any political demonstration, the vast majority of the people that have been turning up at these protests aren't causing property damage at all. Mm-hmm. Um, with the far left and uh, groups and the anarchist groups and uh, normally working together, they tend to they tend to target quite specifically. They mm-hmm. are after uh, big chains, large scale businesses, and particularly businesses that are connected to things that they don't like for other reasons, uh, like banks that are involved in finance and industries that, that they're against. So they'll specifically go after that. Um, and things like very expensive cars, if they see that, that's often a common target for people from the black bloc because they believe if you own a car like that, then you are part of the problem. For the people engaged in the looting, um, Again, the crime gangs, they're after, they're after very different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I was talking to a journalist the other day who said that he had seen a lot of things like gas stations being targeted, liquor stores, that kind of thing. And was there any particular reason for that? And that, that's the crime gangs that are doing that because it's small things, easily taken and easily either consumed or resold. Uh, and, and the same with designer clothes, hitting built, hit, hitting places that do designer footwear, designer clothes. Um, that is because they either want it for their own personal use or they think it'll be easily sold on. How do you control three different groups with three different agendas? All in a very close proximity to each other. It is yeah. very, very difficult. That That is what makes the policing of any protest event a very difficult thing to do. Um, when we are training officers, what we teach them is you are looking to target the violent offenders while as much as possible leaving everyone else alone. Um, and, and that's a difficult thing to do. And sometimes you need to take risk to do it. Sometimes you need to put officers into the crowd to specifically go after a group of people. But it, it is, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. You, you are there to protect, but in America, you're there to protect the First Amendment rights of the peaceful protesters just as much as you're there to protect the businesses from those that are violent. There's been a lot of talk about the Insurrection Act being used by the president. Do you see this solving or, or possibly exacerbating the situation? I actually, I don't believe it's going to get to where that is required. Uh, I think what the cities are doing at the moment seems to be having a, enough of an effect without having to bring, um, without having to bring the, the regular army, for want of a better term, in, into it. I don't think it's actually required. And most military units don't do any form of crowd management training. It's only really the, the National Guard where it's part of their remit. Right. Adam, I want to thank you for joining us. No problem at all. My pleasure.
Adam Leggett works as a security consultant specializing in crowd management for the Densus Group. It's said you have to look back to see where you're going. And just over five years ago, Scott Gilmore and McLean's wrote on the police killing of Walter Scott in Charleston. It cited three reasons that black men were being shot by U.S. police. It was called American exceptionalism. And Scott joins us now. And, and Scott, I want to thank you for joining us. The number one reason you pointed out five years ago uh, that police were shooting black men was the number of guns in the U.S., 300 million at that time. Well, then the pandemic hits and Americans go on a buying spree. Any idea how many guns are in the U.S. now and why they feel that arming themselves will protect them against a virus? You know, I haven't looked at the latest statistics. I couldn't even guess, but they they do remain by a long margin the most well-armed country in the world. I mean, I think at at, uh, even countries like Afghanistan, don't have as many guns circulating per capita as they do in the United States. And, and it does seem that every time there is some sort of social shift in the United States, whether it's, as you said, the, the arrival of the coronavirus, but also, you know, the election of Obama, uh, they all lead to spikes in, in gun purchases, hurricanes, spikes in gun purchases, mm. mass shooting, spikes in gun, gun purchases, any sort of discussion about gun control, spike in gun purchases. It's a, it's a runaway train. You know, there's uh, one of the other things you pointed out was uh, with being so many guns out there. If you're a police officer, you're going to be pretty defensive about anybody you're dealing with, aren't you? Well, yes, but there's a heavy caveat there. Mm -hmm. The the defensiveness of the American police, um, what do we call it, methodology, the, the policy, the strategy that police use is really disproportionate to anybody else in the world. Canada actually has a lot of guns per capita as well, uh, particularly compared to European countries. But when you compare the number of police shootings in Canada per capita versus the United States, it's still much, much lower than you would think given the number of guns we have in circulation. But in the U.S., they very much have a warrior mentality when it comes to policing and not a policing mentality as we think about it in Canada. So they go into every interaction with the expectation of the person that they're that – they're, uh, when you're interacting with is not only armed, but is hostile. And, you know, that just that simple mental shift alone completely changes the dynamic as we've seen. And that, that in a lot of cases probably isn't the reality. Well, I, I spent a lot of time in the United States and mm-hmm. uh, I've also spent a lot of time in, in war zones around the world. So I always get my hackles up a little bit when I hear people describe, you know, New York looks like a war zone right now. Well, no, no, it doesn't, not at all. And the American people are some of the friendliest and kindest people I've ever come across. And so it's strange how the police have managed to isolate themselves and to disperse uh, mentality. You know, uh, uh, the police unions seem to be taking a lot of heat in the last uh, little while. What, what what do you say see them contributing to the culture of the police, like police forces today? Well, that is actually a very interesting point. I follow, I spend a lot of time in New York. I follow what, what happens in New York very closely. In fact, I'm on my way to New York tomorrow. And the police union there is not just hostile and aggressive. It's almost um, like warlike. For example, the other day they doxed. They, they released online the uh, personal address details of the mayor's daughter because they were unhappy with what the mayor was saying uh, in regards to uh, policing strategies in, in New York. Now, can you just imagine that? They released the private details of the mayor's daughter in an attempt to terrorize them. It's just incredible. They, they really, anytime that uh, 
you see a police shooting, it's always the police union that tries to shut down any sort of investigation. They've been very successful across the United States uh, from coast to coast in every state and city to uh, implement new law, uh, new regulations within their, their contracts that include things like uh, any police officer's uh, record gets uh, wiped every five years. So no matter what they do, it's cleaned. Or, you know, the inability to fire police for misconduct. Uh, in terms of the training strategies as well, the, the focusing on a warrior strategy, that also is driven by the police unions. So they really are a, a bad actor in this in this dilemma. Scott Gilmore is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's columnist with McLean's Magazine and a uh, former diplomat as well. Now, we talked about uh, your, your column from five years ago, which could pretty well read the same as today. The lionizations of police. Police are, you know, they're always the heroes. They always wear the cape. They're always doing the right thing. But that's not always the case. And a lot of times, the, you know, you, you look at these the, these police forces that, you know, SWAT teams, like, you yeah. know, They've got everything. It's almost like they're spoiling to pick a fight. Well, they, so two comments on that. One is, uh, yes, the police have become very militarized in the United States. And that's due not, not only to the, the warrior culture of the policing, but also because a lot of was brought in under the Bush administration and then uh, was shut down by the Obama administration, which basically redeployed uh, surplus military assets from Iraq and Afghanistan to any police force in the United States who wanted it. And so as a result, you ended up with these small town police forces with basically, you know, light armored vehicles and uh, combat helicopters mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the type of firepower that you need to take down a walled compound in Kandahar uh, that they're using in terms of their for community mm-hmm. policing in, in, uh, in Muskoka, or sorry, in uh, Muskegee. So that, that's an issue. In terms of putting the police on a pedestal, which has traditionally been the, the case in the United States, I do feel like there has been a shift in the last 10 days that there, we have been so inundated with images of police brutality and with a clear sense that the police have, have, have lost the plot in terms of serving and protecting that I, I think more damage has been done to this idea of the police as a pillar of society in American culture than at any other point in history. Wow. Very interesting. Well, you know, the footage is, you know, speaks for itself. You, you, you've got officers tear gassing and rubber bullets at the media. It's, I've never seen anything like this. Well, I guess maybe since 92. You know, you know I haven't either. And, and I have some very personal experience with this. When I was a, a junior diplomat, I was deployed in, uh, in uh, Indonesia during, uh, in the late 1990s and the collapse of the government mm-hmm. there. When there was chaos and rioting on the streets that went on for a couple of years and personally witnessed uh, the, the, the shooting deaths of, of protesters and in, in one case, a journalist and was you know, on the ground with them reporting on what was happening, not as a journalist, but you know, for the Canadian government as a diplomat. And I was only once ever threatened by the Indonesian police. And the Indonesian police, are, they're not good guys. At least they weren't back then. You know, they were responsible for massacres, they're responsible for disappearances. They were committing some of the worst human rights uh, uh, tr- atrocities in the world at that time. And yet one line they wouldn't cross was attacking Western uh, journalists or, or, or diplomats. Whereas, as you've seen, it, dozens and dozens mm-hmm. on a daily basis, journalists from all over the world, American journalists, local journalists, school, school reporters uh, are being harassed and attacked and targeted by the police. It's astounding. What do you think of the Insurrection Act? Do you expect that will be brought in, or is that uh, too much hammer? 
So I don't have any, or I have very limited legal training. And it sure. does seem to me the Insurrection Act depends almost entirely on the governor requesting it and not okay. on the president uh, um, enforcing it. And so from what I can tell, even the Republican governors don't want this. Um, mm. So I don't, I think, again, it was, as is very, very typical with the Trump administration, it was an announcement that was meant for the day's news cycle and means nothing going forward. You know, the third uh, pillar in why, why uh, going back to your article from five years ago, was the uh, racial divide between uh, white and black in the U.S. Has it grown wider since? So there's been some interesting uh, studies that have been uh, done by Pew and a few other uh, American think tanks that have tried to track this in different ways. And the broad takeaway from that is that racial divides actually got worse under Obama. And they've continued to get worse under Trump for different reasons. And so, yes, America is is very much a country divided. And it's not just black and white. It's also Hispanic and, and, and Anglophone and urban and rural and uh, blue collar and white collar. It really is a, a country that is currently fractured in so many different ways and really does need a leader that can bring everybody together. What do you think it's going to take to stop the shooting? This this may be the tipping point. I, mm-hmm. I I hesitate to say that because so often in life we think that what's happening at this moment is is extraordinary, and then in hindsight we realize that no, it was just you know another mm-hmm. another step in the same journey. But we do have we have seen some quite remarkable things, like for example, the NFL yesterday uh, releasing that statement where they basically said they were wrong about Colin Kaepernick and that they they that black lives do matter and then they there should be a right for people to put take a knee during a uh, an NFL game. Well, that seems like a fairly trivial thing, but it does reflect a, a massive shift in the perspective of a group of people that have been very entrenched for a very long time. And you're seeing the same thing with Republican senators now beginning to speak out, with mayors across the country speaking out. And there has been a shift in polling that also shows that I think the number that I saw was 70% of Americans now believe that the, uh, the police are using too much force when it comes to dealing with uh, peaceful protests. That's a, that's a dramatic shift. So when the dam breaks, oh, let's hope so. Scott, I want to thank you for joining us. Ed, it's always a pleasure. Scott Gilmore is a former diplomat and current columnist with McLean's Magazine. Time now for our unpublished.vote question. You can go to unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Do you feel there's institutional racism within North American police forces? You can log on and vote yes, no, or unsure and have your voice heard. I want to thank our guest today, Yahura Williams, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Adam Leggett at the Security Consultant specializing in crowd management for the Densis Group. And Scott Gilmore, columnist with McLean's Magazine. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.